United stumbled to a win against Leeds at Ellen Road this weekend, with the side struggling to create chances and conceding possession high up the pitch frequently. Late substitutions seem to make a difference, but United now go into their Europa League clash with Barcelona decidedly out of form. Today on Devils in the Details, we discuss exactly how concerning these performances against Leeds have been, why they've happened, and what we've learned about the side over the course of its doubleheader with staunch rivals, Leeds. Aaron, you were drunk for most of this match. How much of it do you actually remember? I could see you thrilled waiting to read this off the outline that you wrote. Um, well, listen, if if pretending to be drunk means that you're going to host more episodes, I'm, I'll do it every week. I'll just say the word and, uh, and it'll be done. <laughs> um, it was an interesting game. I feel like it's weird in the spectrum of like, I think United struggled, but I I think it's kind of almost a one-off fixture in the way it played out versus the way Leeds played, and I think that's what explains a lot of the bad performances. So I'm excited to get into it. Okay, interesting. I'm 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 intrigued to hear what you mean by that. Um, so yeah, in the scheme of things, how bad do you think this performance was? Like on a scale of Brentford match week two and. Beating up on Spurs back in the fall. Where does this fall in the range of our performances this season? Yeah, sure. I think if that Brentford game is a 1 and the Spurs game was a 10, I think this is maybe like a 3 or 4. Below average. I think there's a lot to explain that. Um, And I think, like I said, it's very different to a lot of the other matches that have played out this season. And... We'll get into why now. So it is a three or a four, but I think there's an asterisk on that in that it's hard to measure on the same plane as these two games. I agree. I think I go for like a three, but again, we're just throwing random meaningless numbers out there. Yeah, so let's get into what went wrong. Um, you seemed to have a, a lead into this. You, you seem to have some thoughts. So I'll, I'll let you go and then I'll I'll jump in. The overarching theme of this game really is that United played it like they were playing a bottom half team but they were playing a side whose out-of-possession approach mimics that of a top team, right? Leeds try to press United high out of possession and uh, and prevent them from playing out of the back. And normally in response to that this season, United have gone long from goal kicks. That's been something we've talked about a lot. But in these two matches against Leeds, United have largely tried to actually play out of the back. And I think that's been the cause of a lot of these long stretches of mediocrity and giving up transitions, Um in comparison to maybe some of the other matches. And there there were other things that went wrong too, but I, I really think that's a large thing is United trying to treat this like they were playing a team like, like Bournemouth or Forest or Wolves when a lot of what they do mimics something closer to the Brentford game where United struggled or teams like, you know, Arsenal, Liverpool, City, when United went long from goal kicks. Yeah, I agree. I I don't think you're saying this exactly, but I think this is the first time this season that we that that I've been disappointed with the tactical approach that, that I felt it was a bit naive the way we set up today, especially since we saw lead, this exact same lead side a few days ago and 
we saw some issues, and then we started this match exactly the way we started that match, and then didn't break the cycle, which I think it's pretty clear how you can do that. And I think we even we saw it in both of these fixtures. There's a way to get around playing out of that press. Um, Leeds is not an airtight side. They leak goals. So to be pinned like that is, is a choice. And I, I can't say I really understood why we approach this match the same way we approached yeah. Wednesday's match. Yeah, so I think going down 1-0 kind of affected a lot of our discussion about what happened in the Wednesday game. And I think it's important to kind of talk a little bit about what leads do first, right? And I think the crux of it is they are a very effective pressing team, right? They had a really fit side under Bielsa. Um, Bielsa employed a man-oriented press. Um, eventually the project Bielsa had at Premier League level crumbled a little bit, and they brought in Jesse Marsh, who also coaches a high press. It's pretty much the only thing he's known for coaching, and Jesse Jesse Marsh is gone, but those principles are still there. It's one thing to say, you know, look at this match and say, this is an example of how United struggle to play out of a press, and that's absolutely true, right? But what I will say is, there are probably an exclusive group of very, very few teams who have not struggled to play out of this Leeds team, um, out of their press. I didn't actually, I'm pretty sure the list would be Man City. Like, most of the other teams in the league have struggled with it considerably. Um, I think, I I don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Brighton just sliced through them when they played. I hadn't thought of Brighton. Well, that's possible. I I was generally talking about big six teams, but that's that's also really possible with Brighton. Um, regardless, it's it's a semantic point. I think Leeds are an effective pressing side to an, to a limited extent. The the press itself is good, but for me, I think to say a, a side is a highly effective pressing side, they have to also be able to back it up when you go long against them and turn it into a match of chaos and. Leeds can't do that. That's why Leeds are bad. That's why they're in the relegation zone or very near it. So I totally agree. I think I think that's the difference between the Leeds team that United faced today and the Ralph Hasenhutl Southampton sides that United struggled with uh, under Solskjaer, right? That team was much better at preventing you from just hitting the ball over their press and winning second balls and playing at them. Whereas this Leeds team allow you to do that. And that's where I agree with you that United went wrong, right? They should have just allowed Leeds to press them and then played over them and tried to win second balls and just get into the attack. Because while it is important to play out of the back, in most games, I feel like this is a one-off opponent where you're just going to have more success by forgetting it and just trying to hit it over. The rest of what they do is totally unspectacular, right? And we saw this when down 1-0 against them. Um, they can't defend the long ball. They don't really win second balls in that central area. They press really high, but the sort of foundations behind it aren't necessarily there. They defend really narrow and deep, which allows you to have a lot of joy in wide areas. In particular, you can play the ball out wide to one side against them and then cross it at the opposite post, and that gives you a lot of joy. I think you kind of saw like some aspects of that in Rashford's opener. Long story short, even though this match is an indictment on United's ability to play out of the back. I think the real mistake in this match was deciding to do that in the first place because most teams struggle with that, and we already know United are not an elite team playing out of the back. It's not a surprise to anyone, um, and I don't think this is the match to go in to to try and change that. 
I agree. So let's get more specific about exactly why we struggled with the press, right? Because I think generally speaking, like you said, we've, we've spoken earlier on in the podcast about how we, the, this United side does not do well against coherent high presses. But today seemed particularly bad. Why do you think that was? Was that personnel? Or do you think that was some specific tactical tweak or lack thereof? Bit of both. So firstly, personnel-wise, let's start there and let's start from the back, right? In goal. What Leeds were essentially doing in the Wednesday match was they recognized that they could have a spare man. And this is this is a fundamental pressing move that a lot of bottom half teams use, right? They recognized that they could have an extra man if they left a spare man in United's defense who could possess the ball. And it was Varane. So they didn't go fully man-to-man. They didn't go fully man-to-man. Correct. They marked out Varane's passing options instead of directly trying to get Varane off the ball, right? And by doing that, what happens is instead of forcing quick ball wins, what you're doing is you're forcing United to struggle because you're allowing a player who cannot break lines and progress the ball easily to possess the ball and making it harder making his passing options more difficult to execute. Now, there's two solutions to that. Number one is a better goalkeeper. If you have a better goalkeeper, they can't really have that strategy because the one man they leave is two men. So in order for them to mark all of your outfield players, they need to essentially go man-to-man, right? One outfielder on each man out, and then the goalkeeper has the ball, and the goalkeeper is the one picking out passes. So if you have a goalkeeper who's good on the ball, you can break these presses, right? And... You were actually talking about how Brighton played through their press. I Again, I didn't watch that game. But if I were to, I suspect what I would see is a lot of the ball going back to Robert Sanchez, who is a really good goalkeeper on the ball for Brighton, and him being able to pick out options before Leeds could close him down and then getting out of the press from there. The second way you fix it is by having an exceptional player on the ball at center back. What United did in this match was instead of Varane, they played Harry Maguire at center back. Now... I think, in theory, Maguire should be better on the ball. I think there was a time in Maguire's United career that he was better on the ball than Varane has been this season. But this season, he hasn't shown it at all, right? And today, he had so many issues playing out of the back on the ball. And basically, that created the same issue as Varane. And I'd argue even worse than Varane because he wasn't really progressing the ball. And he also doesn't have the same security as Varane. So when you have someone like Varane... He knows he's not a particularly progressive passer, so he will choose the safe option a lot. And there are passes he makes that I don't, like, you were talking about how you didn't like the pass that Varane makes to Dalo, for example, when he's under pressure to relieve the pressure. And that's because it doesn't give Dalo any options to progress from there. And I agree, but it's still a safer option than what Maguire will try to do as a player who historically is good at breaking lines and progressing the ball. He'll either try to carry the ball forward towards the pressure, or he'll try to break the line. And if you don't execute well on those actions, you lose the ball. And you're the last man. So you're creating transitions against yourself. And that's why playing out of the back is such a risky thing, right? It's like this whole season has been defined by United's insistence on trying to play that ball out of the back. And and their inability to. So deciding not to at all for a long stretch. And the reason for that is because... It's really beneficial if you can. You can tear these teams apart. And in Leeds' case, if you break the first line, 
they're totally there for the taking. But if you fail to, they're going to create chances against you, really high-quality chances, regardless of the quality of personnel they have. And if you can't execute on that trade-off, you're playing exactly into their hands, which is what United did in this match. Yeah, I, I broadly agree with everything you said there. I think Maguire should offer more on the ball, and, and, and in an ideal world, he, he would have made a bigger difference in this match. But the reality is, I think today, uh, in the away fixture, we were worse than we were in the home fixture, even with game state in mind. And I would, I would say, I think a, a reason for that was, you mentioned that leads are vulnerable from switches of play. I want to get a little bit more specific on what that means. The nature of Leeds press is such that they're very typically inclined to leave the, the, the far side of the pitch very, very exposed. Uh, they really they go man-to-man, and a lot, in a lot of cases what that means is you get a lot of separation from the far-sided player on, like, let's say you have the ball on the right side of the field. Your leftmost player in possession can create a lot of separation from their, their marker, whereas the rest of the pitch gets sort of clogged up. They leave a free man in a lot of cases. Not, not a deliberately free man, but a man in a lot of space on the far side of the pitch um, when the ball is on one side. A thing that you might do to take advantage of that is to switch play, right? Switch play aggressively. United seems to have that in mind, in particular Maguire, uh, and you could see in a lot of, like, very often during this match, he was trying to play diagonals, on the one hand, he struggled technically, right? He just wasn't executing those diagonals well at all, uh, and that was a huge liability. But even if he hadn't been, I think a big reason that United gave up the ball high up, high up the pitch, uh, allowed for a lot of fast transitions, and didn't create chances in this match, is that instead of trying to draw in Leeds' press and then switch play, they instead just switched play. There's no point in switching play if you're not going to drag Leeds's press one to one side of the pitch and create space. Otherwise, you're just playing a long distance pass that's going to be difficult to get right. Even if it's perfect, you still might not complete it because there's not enough space to play it into. And the receiver isn't going to have space to drive into, which means you're not going to break the first line. Yeah. Yeah. I think this was a key, key aspect of the approach that I felt was naive. This might have been a player execution issue though, because it seemed to me that in a lot of cases, these balls were forced. Um, Dallow tried it a few times, but it was mostly Maguire. And so I think that was a big reason why you saw throughout the match, United just could not break through that first line. I think Maguire had some issues in his both decision-making and execution that made the entire idea of switching problematic in this game. And I think it's also a, uh, a systemic thing where, you know, when Maguire was playing these diagonals, they were bad diagonals for sure, right? But you also, I think if you looked back at a lot of them, they were such that the receiving player would have to control it and take it in stride within maximum two touches, or they were already closed down. And that's a byproduct of what you're saying, which is, when you don't draw the press out and then play into the vacant space, you just play into the vacant space, the vacant space is not vacant. Yeah, so that's issue number one. Midfield. How much of, of our inability to play out of this press do you think was down to Bruno, Fred, and Sabitzer? 
to me, I actually don't think, especially in this match, it was key. I think maybe if you go back to the home fixture, it was a bigger deal. But I thought today the issues in midfield actually had more to do with press execution than they did with in-possession issues. Yeah, no more than usual, I think. I think on Wednesday it was actually a bigger problem. Like Fred really struggled on Wednesday with receiving with back to goal, um, being put in scenarios where he where he basically was dropping off Leeds' defensive midfielders to try and uh, to try and show for a progressive pass, which is correct. That's how you play out of the back, but he doesn't have the technique to then receive that ball and play on the turn from there, which we've talked about a lot. Um, I, I think that was more prevalent on Wednesday than today, to be honest, but. Um, I don't think it's totally not that, right? Like, if you have a midfielder like Frankie de Jong, it always helps. um, Because what's going to happen is, A, bad passes can become okay passes, or okay passes can become good passes. Um, And B, they're forced to deal with the threat of Frankie, which is going to create space for everyone else. I I think those are both things that happen if you have a more press-resistant midfielder here. But I don't overall I don't think it was an issue in terms of, you know, Fred and Savitzer versus Casemiro and Eriksson, which is I think what a lot of people are interpreting from watching these last two matches versus the matches before that. I think if you had better midfielders, you wouldn't have to do what we're describing as the way to get around playing out of the back, which is play long over the top and go for second balls. You wouldn't have to do that if you had somebody like Frankie, for instance. That's not the case. However, I don't think United performed poorly today because of the lack of press resistance of the midfielders. I think United performed poorly for different reasons. Yeah, I Which takes us to our, our next thing. Rashford was basically totally factored out of this match in the first half. Uh, and then that changed in the second half, which is interesting because that's also what happened in the home fixture, uh, except he was playing on the opposite wing. Sancho was still the one receiving the ball, basically the only winger who touched the ball in the first half, really. And I think this is an interesting thing because we've now seen Sancho and Rashford struggle in this exact situation against this Leeds press, which is the way that United like to build out from the back in a lot of instances, is to go either straight from the, the center back to the winger at the touchline, well, or to have one of the fullbacks go high, and on the other side, uh, the other fullback becomes part of back three, and then you go direct from that fullback to the winger, in which circumstance the fullback is functionally a center back. So the wingers really are key to first phase buildup, which is weird. It's, it's not necessarily typical of every side that builds out from the back but it's true for united i'd be even more specific with that because it's usually the left back who joins the back three and the right back who goes forward and consequentially i think it's usually anthony who is the winger who is involved more in build-up than rashford um it, it does vary yeah, well, I think, okay so okay so i think we're imagining two different configurations i agree okay. with you in your conclusion but Okay, so let's rewind. Imagine United in you know a typical four-two-three-one. Um, you know you have your back four in the classic configuration, two-man midfield. Uh, your your Bruno and your wingers, and then your striker. When Dallow or the 
or Wambasaka goes forward, they typically go infield. Yep. They become a central uh, passing option. When Shaw goes forward, he typically stays wide. Yep. Uh, he re- uh, remains a, an exterior passing option, and then Rashford comes infield. When Dallow and Wambasaka go forward, Anthony stays wide. Yeah. Because Dallow and Wambasaka are going internally, essentially. Ultimately, what this means is, regardless of which fullback is up, whether that be the right back or whether that be Shaw, you have the winger on the right side as the player at the touchline. So what that means is the right-sided winger is key to build up in the first phase, whereas it's not necessarily true for the left-sided winger. So what we saw in both of these Leeds matches is the right winger, it was Rashford in the first match, it was, it was Sancho today, getting the ball heavily isolated. Uh, a lot of the times they'd be surrounded by two, three, even four Leeds players, uh, and then forced to make something out of that. And in most cases, it means you turn around and you pass it backwards. And it means there's no outlet. I think this is somewhere that we really, really miss Anthony. I don't think this would have been as big a problem had we had Anthony. Yeah. And it's because Anthony is really, really good in these these situations where he receives the ball in that isolated space on the right and he just delays and he allows the the uh, the defensive line of United to step forward and progress into second into the second phase of buildup. I don't want to call it call it hold up play because he's typically not being you know accosted by a center back, but just his ability to receive the ball at that that right touch line and play infield because he has easier angles being left footed, or uh, just sort of hold the ball for a little while uh, would have made a big difference. Yeah, I think Anthony also is advantaged by the fact that he's left footed to some extent here. Like, I think the angles open up better for a left footer than a right footer. I could be wrong, though. Like, the way I, yeah, the way I envision it is if Dalo's making an inward run and Anthony's receiving super wide, um, the typical action of a right footer in that scenario is going to be to receive on their right foot where they're going to have people coming from inside them and they're going to have to play the ball back. Whereas for a left footer, it's really natural to play the pass back. It's really natural to try and find Dalo. Um, and it is also more natural in, in, to try and this the instance. Foul. Dallow is infield in like midfield spaces, you're saying? Yes. As opposed to being part of the back three. It's an important distinction. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anyway, we got a little down in the weeds there. But the key takeaway there, I think, is a bottleneck that Leeds relied on in this match that I don't think necessarily would have existed had Anthony been playing was United playing from the center back to the right winger and the right winger not being able to. Uh, retain possession higher up the pitch. Is the workaround for this issue to have the right winger drop into midfield and Dalo go wide instead when Anthony's not playing? Like, how do you solve this issue if you don't have a left-footed winger? It's an interesting question. I'm really... I haven't given it a lot of thought. Um, But if I were to do something I'd really try to avoid doing and think aloud while we record. Yeah, I mean, that could work. You could send the right winger infield. And in this man-marking scheme, yeah, maybe you drag his man-marker narrow, uh, which maybe opens up some space for Dallow. But I think Dallow, I think you're just sort of 
you could be just rearranging the problem. Yeah, because Dell is still right footed. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I think I, all right. Really, what I think the solution here is is you take all three midfielders and you shift them over to the ball side. Basically, you just like congest that area, uh, and what it allows is when you go from the center back directly to the right winger. So today it was Sancho. A lot of the time today, Sancho was surrounded by defenders and he had no clear passing options except for the, the back pass. If you congest that area with United midfielders, even if the pass isn't available, he can go back to the center back and immediately switch into actual space because midfield the, the left side of midfield will be entirely vacant. Um, and this is actually exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is baiting the press and then switching as opposed to just switching completely. I don't know that you're going to be able to just find a configuration where you can just brute force through that bottleneck in, in, in the press. But you can exploit it, and I think that's generally what good coaches do. And, and I, I again, I think we have a good manager. I'm just saying like that – I don't think – for the most part, the intelligent thing to do when you find yourself not able to solve uh, a tactical problem is to just, yeah, brute force it. You'd work around it. Um, and I think that was what I was a little disappointed by in these two fixtures is that we didn't work around things. Yeah, I, I pretty yeah. much agree. Okay, so I think we've talked enough about the press. Let's move forward. United struggled to make it out of their own half, but even when they did, they didn't really create chances. What do you think this is down to? Oh, this one's hard. Um, I'm not sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go at this one first because I think you have an idea. Yeah. So I think I hate to bring this up a third time. I think this again comes down to the overloads and the switches. Th- that I agree. Um, I was I was thinking more like new ideas that. Yeah, okay, no, but I think we can, you can transit. I think talking about this leads into different conversations about the final third. United weren't executing those switches of play well, which meant the only times that they ever did get into Leeds' third uh, were from high ball wins. As to why those high ball wins didn't turn into shots, I honestly just think there weren't enough of them. Uh, which is, again, an exception to our approach. I don't actually think we were like inefficient in the final third, especially in the first half of this match. We just didn't get there. I suppose there were a few instances where Sancho, I think, got, got the ball on the right um, and just didn't, didn't do much with it. It didn't uh, become an incisive move. That might be down to not having numbers forward, not being able to get numbers forward. But yeah, I also thought there was a lot of backpassing. Uh, instances where we could have pushed, um, but instead we reset. And this is just like a team where you want to avoid resetting at all costs. They are at their best when you have to start from the beginning. Uh, it's because, because that's when they're, it's when they're most organized and it's really the only phase of the the match where they have a a coherent plan. Um, so we made it a little too easy for them in that respect, I think. Yeah, I definitely think there's a point to be made about capitalizing upon the unsettled defense in nil-nil game state. I think we've talked a lot about how United 
maybe try to force the issue too much in one nil game state and increase the pace of play when slowing it down actually benefits them. But in this case, maybe there were a lot of examples of United slowing down the play when they could have sped it up. Obviously, there was some some luck involved in the, the big goal totals that United put up against Leeds under Solskjaer. But I do think the franticness of how those Solskjaer sides played um, meant that the ball rarely went backwards when weird stuff happened in Leeds half. Uh, and so it was, it was more efficient um, because that side really was never looking to reset possession. Um, so I do wonder how much of an effect that had. Not that I missed that. I think in the aggregate, it's better to be the way uh, to, to err on the side of control. But United weren't controlling this match from from build-up phases, so I don't know why you would seek to to restart your build-up phases. Like I don't I don't disagree. I I think you're right. Um, I also think going back to maybe some of the stuff we discussed in the last match, United there is I think to some extent a talent gap here with United and the top teams. It's now four matches I think in the Premier League for Wout Weghorst, and he has had two shots. I think Weghorst has added a lot in his link-up play. I think he adds a nice focal point to the team. I think he consistently occupies the last line. I think also that the speed at which he moves and the types of movements he tends to come up with don't really facilitate high quality shot creation or at least not on the terms that united's creative players like to create chances yeah i think i agree very specifically with the latter point because on the one end i he's caught a weird run of matches uh yeah yeah. he's been good i also think leads are not really his opposition so yeah nor do i think arsenal are Um, yeah and so that's three of the five league matches he's played four or five I think yeah I just think this is a player who what he really offers to you is most pronounced in matches where you're dominating possession and territory where you're camped in the other uh, side's half uh, which has not been the case for any of these matches which is a little funny because it was the case for like every match in January and late December uh, until he came and then the fixture list changed. But yeah, I mean, two shots no matter what is just not good enough. I just in, think in United were more effective creatively when Rashford went up front and they brought on Garnacho. Um, 100%. And I think Garnacho played a... Matches. Even, I think Garnacho even played a bigger role in that than Rashford, frankly. Like, I think he was so, again, so decisive 1v1. Um, and I think he honestly was making pretty good decisions for a lot of it. And I think that helped United increase pressure in the attack and force leads back. It's not just being able to beat his man, which he does a lot, right? Like the second goal, his burst to beat his man is great. But I also think it's the ability to get a defender and consequentially an entire defense backpedaling to face up to a fullback and you actually have the credible threat of being able to beat them. And what you do is you force them to defend against them beating you, which is, that's the worst thing that can happen to them in, in a defensive, from a defensive standpoint. 
And that creates space and time for him to do more on the ball, I think. Um, and also for him to get closer to goal. And I think that helps United push back these teams when in possession and gain gain valuable territory and, and time to create chances. So I think you can improve in the realm of dribbling wingers. I think United might have a nice in-house solution to that problem. I think Rashford would have been nice up front in this match as well. So I don't exactly think you're creating a who-do-we-drop issue. Yeah, I, I would add to what you're saying. I also think the having a box presence, somebody who's you know occupying the last line religiously, pushing it deeper, is a lot less important against sides that are going to man-mark you at the back, which leads don't explicitly... The, like they don't go man for man across their their back four back uh, yeah against across their back four, but they do go more man for man than most sides do. Most sides are fully zonal at the back for most of the match, um, which is not true of Leeds. When that's the case, having somebody whose main responsibility is uh, just being a box target and sitting on the last line is way less meaningful because the back line is going to respond to their individual markers because they're man marking as opposed to responding to where the ball is when the other side has possession, because that's what a zonal defense does, right? If the ball is with the opposition left back, you step forward. If the ball comes to, you know, if they play a line breaking pass, the, the opposition striker receives the ball in front of defense, the defenders drop back or, most of them drop back. One might follow into midfield while you move your entire rest structure back. But that's not true of man-marking sides. It's why, in some cases, they're way easier to penetrate, but then you also have these advantages, right? Yeah. Uh, you can basically completely mark a player out of a game. Yeah, um, the, the great example is the same thing where, you know, they have the issues with switching to one side and crossing back to the other. And that's because it causes chaos in their man-marking setup, right? When you switch to one side, suddenly all of the men are into pressing is on the wrong side of the ball. Everyone is behind the man that they need to be at. So they shift immediately to cover and get to the other side. And in the time they're shifting, if you play a ball back, that causes that that breaks yeah. their defense. Um, and that's exactly why it's so problematic for, for Leeds. Yeah, that's exactly what the opener was, right? Uh, yeah. A little bit of interplay between Bruno and Sabitzer. And then Sabitzer rips a, a switch of play for Shaw. Shaw gets the ball, shields it, crosses before Leeds can regain their man marking structure. And really United had three players practically unmarked in the box. Rashford scored the goal, but I think the key thing here was just the sheer volume of, of attackers you had unmarked. And it's because of exactly what you just described. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a number of ways where United can improve in these areas. I also don't think, like you said, that this is the main reason why, they struggled to dominate this match. It was more about the time they spent in these creative situations than the actual creative efficiency, if you will, that they mustered with the situations that they had. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Enough of that. Do we think, or do you think that the defensive issues in this match, we conceded, I think, almost two expected goals and, and Luckily, we didn't actually concede any real goals, but definitely not a good defensive performance. Do you think that was just down to the issues in build-up phase, or do you think there were uh, issues with defensive structure? 
Yeah, that's a tough one. I think I'd have to watch back to to give you a really good answer yeah. on that one. I I do. Oh. My initial uh, my initial thought is yeah, it's United losing the ball in worse areas than they typically do. A lot of these situations being transitions. If I were to take a little bit more of a speculative guess, but I'd need to watch back for this is uh, struggling to deal with crosses into the box that uh, that are in transitions. So United are backpedaling in defense and Leeds have a lot of quick attackers who are pretty good in dribbling situations and pretty fast. Um, so they can try and get a foot on those crosses. Like I'm looking at these shots and it was Bamford, Somerville and Harrison. So to me, that's a lot yeah. of what it seems like. It's giving the ball away in bad areas and then um, and then deliveries from wide. But I'm guessing, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I think for the most part, it was just give high high ball losses, giving the ball away in their own third and their own half. However, I do think there were a few instances where Leeds played through United from their own goal kicks, uh, from phases where honestly you would think United would be at an advantage, and that's press execution. And for the most part, I felt that the issues with the press execution had to do with specifically Sabitzer, really. Casemiro has a very complex role in United's press. In a Go lot ahead. of instances, it's in a, against a lot of sides, it's just man-to-man. It's just man-to-man. But in others, he's a free man, which is what Sabitzer was in this match. And he doesn't really seem to have a handle on it the way Casemiro does. I'm not even sure he ever will. Because Casemiro is world-class at that specific thing. So I think this is an area where you can say United really are missing Casemiro. Um, I don't think he really solves that much in build-up, but I definitely think he solves that specific issue, which is not the primary issue they've been suffering from against Leeds, but it does show up. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah, so firstly, not Sabitzer's position. He has stepped in to replace Casemiro... Um, when he was probably joining the club expecting to replace Fred in the side after Erickson's injury. I think that plays a part. Like, it's just not really his background to play this type of role. Point being, usually you have one player who is responsible for the zonal coverage that are that is created by gaps in a man-oriented pressing system. And in United system, it's Casemiro most of the time. And I think also Casemiro switches between, like you said, directly marking a man and then also often having that half-zonal responsibility. That's really difficult, right? Um, and Casemiro performs it really well. So to just step in and do that is probably the most difficult role in that press. Like, I know one thing that... Why is it difficult? Okay, let's be let's let's paint with very broad strokes for a second, right? If your role in a press is to mark a man, that is extremely visual. You're looking for another player... And essentially trying to do what you can do to prevent the ball from reaching that player in the location that they're in. Why do teams do that? It's, one, more aggressive. Because if you are directly pressing the man, you're going to cause more extreme turnovers of the ball in, in certain areas, right? It's more, it's faster than a zonal press. PPDA passes per defensive action. It measures the intensity of a press. A low PPDA means that you are allowing the opposition to make very few passes before attempting your own defensive action. A high PPDA means you're allowing them to possess the ball, essentially. For better or worse. Let's just lay this out very specifically. 
a low PPDA means that you are pressing a lot. It doesn't tell you where on the pitch you're pressing and it doesn't tell you how effectively you're pressing. It just says, how often are you making a defensive action against the other team relative to how often they're completing passes against you? It's literally the total amount of passes that another team attempts in their own half divided by the number of defensive actions you attempt in that half in a match. Super simplistic metric, not a measure of team quality. Point is, Leeds had the most aggressive man-oriented press in the Premier League for a number of years under Bielsa, and their PPDA was at a record low. The main reason why elite managers are still insisting on having some level of man-oriented approach in their pressing, at least in my opinion, is the fact that it leads to faster and more dangerous turnovers of the ball, even though it can be exploited. And all of these zonal measures, like what Casemiro does, are measures to prevent that from being exploited, right? So if you can achieve a really good man-oriented press and win the ball a lot, but you can also cover it with a zonal man when the man-oriented press is beaten, then you've achieved the best of both worlds. And that's what the best managers in the game are striving for. Okay, why am I talking about this? (laughs) So, another reason why A lot of managers, like Bielsa, believe in a man-oriented press is because he believes it is an easier decision-making ordeal for the players on the pitch. Because their role is as simple as following the man that they have to mark. And what that allows you to do is still win the ball high aggressively without having to coach players to recognize complex cues of where they need to be zonally And also be able to make interventions in a press without micro-issues adjusting in those zonal arrangements that, that that can cause the entire press to be broken. And executing those zonal roles is... We're talking about a matter of, like, microseconds on a football pitch, right? A small... A small discrepancy between where you are and where you should be on a pitch when a pass is played can give the opposition player a small bit of extra time that they need to get out of pressure. So small mistakes, it's fine margins, can completely break your press, right? In any given action in a game. So knowing exactly where you have to be when there's no essentially marker there for you to see and adjust to is really difficult. And I've spent a really long time explaining this now, and I probably could have done it more concisely, but... Pretty much that's why I think Casemiro's role is so difficult. And then you're getting a player who isn't a natural defensive midfielder to come in and cover that, right? Sabitzer is not a defensive player by trade. Largely, his role for United is going to be based on what he can do on the ball. And so you're basically taking someone who is completely foreign to this very difficult role and having them play understudy to someone who is very familiar with and one of the best players in the world at covering zones of the pitch defensively. It is very easy to follow one specific player around the field. It is a lot harder for your role to be, if somebody else makes a mistake, to be close enough to them such that you can intervene and prevent the press from breaking down. Yeah. Yeah, that's the reason for that is, yeah. And the reason for that is you don't know where you need to be 
you only know that you need to be somewhere, <laughs> which basically means you're, it's constantly a game of risk management. You're constantly saying, okay, what are the odds that there's going to be a pressing breakdown in this space? And then you, you have to make a second calculation, which is how costly will it be if that, if that breakdown occurs? And then you have to make a third calculation, which is, okay, now how can I put myself in a space such that it's easy for me to intervene? Yeah. If I were to add a fourth thing, I would also say you are making some of the decision-making trade-off between should I commit to a challenge that could help my team win the ball in the, in the event that this press has failed, or should I be doing essentially damage control of trying to prevent that team from breaking, right? Like people talk about defensive midfielders doing the delay versus commit thing. I think this is an example of that. Why is there a spare man on the far side when Lee's press? When you press, almost always there's going to be a spare man, which is to say it's too risky for you to take all 10 of your outfielders and have them man mark the other 10 outfielders on the pitch. The reason for this, I think, is pretty obvious. If there's any pressing mistake, you are immediately broken because if one player beats their marker, they're completely unmarked indefinitely or you have to switch which is to say somebody else has to leave their marker and then you've got a cascading effect, which is really dangerous because you're almost certainly going to have somebody make a mistake in the switch off and you're going to leave somebody unmarked and you're going to concede a chance. So what most sides do is they leave a spare man somewhere, which is to say they pick somewhere on the pitch and they say, okay, we're not worried about this player receiving the ball. And usually you're not like, oh, I don't, I'm not worried about Bruno Fernandez. You don't pick a specific player in the opposition, you pick an area. So a lot of teams uh, say, we're going to leave a spare man at the back. So one of our center backs is not going to be man-to-man. He's going to be zonal. And in return, we're going un- to leave unmarked one of the opposition center backs because we're not really that worried about him. We don't see a lot of consequences coming from him possessing the ball unmarked in that space. Another way you can do it, and the way leads do it, is... You can go man-to-man on the side of the pitch where the ball is and leave your spare man on the far side of the pitch. When you do this, what happens is the guy on the far side of the pitch winds up in a ton of space. Obviously, there's the the trade-off is, and the, the bet that you're making is by the time the ball gets to him, we will have time to switch over to his side and to reorient our man-to-man press relative to him who now has the ball. That's a risky bet. Leeds make this bet and it really doesn't work very well for them because they're practically in the relegation zone and lots of teams have punished them for it. United failed to punish them for it uh, for the reasons that we've outlined. Okay, so I think we've covered maybe a little bit too much why Casemiro's zonal role is so difficult relative to the other players in the team and why Savitzer is probably struggling with it. And we haven't even gotten into the fact that Casemiro is also just physically capable of covering more ground and winning more duels. So he's not just positionally better at it. He's gifted uh, in that way, technically and physically. Anyway, I think we've covered basically everything that went wrong in this match. I think we can move on to maybe some happier stuff. Martinez, Lisandro, came on in this match, played very, very well. Uh, why, why do you think he didn't start? So, Lissandro's suspended for the Barcelona game on Thursday. 
I think the reason why he didn't start was to give Shaw and Malasia a chance to acquaint back to each other ahead of that game, which is perceived as big. Um, and that's pretty much all there is to it, right? Give Shaw and Malasia the game so they prep to play Barcelona together. Lissandro has to rest. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I agree. Um, yeah, so uh, it, it's going to be Shaw midweek. Are you worried about that with Shaw at center back, given that we, we seem to be a lot better with Lissandro? Or do you think this is this had other uh, there were other reasons for the, the the troubles that we had today? No, I think Shaw is quite good. Um, I think the at main back. at center back. I mean, he's world class at left back, and I'd say at least so far in the small sample we've seen at center back, quite good. I think the main area where you lose out in Shaw versus Lissandro is. This level of innate understanding that Lissandro has about when to commit as a center back in defending situations versus when to retreat. Um, I think Shaw's default as someone who doesn't have that level of understanding is to retreat, which is correct, right? Let me let me illustrate that a little bit more. When Leeds were winning the ball and starting a lot of transition situations, I thought one area where Lissandro was really good was picking out moments where he could essentially destroy their transition, step out, win the ball, and play forward. And that led to United having more control of this game in the later stages. I don't think Shaw has that, but it's better for Shaw not to make those attempts to win the ball than it is for him to step out, make a rash attempt to win the ball, fail, and have leads attacking behind him, essentially going straight at Maguire and whoever else is alongside Maguire. So I think you lose out there in, in the sense that Lissandro's ability to read the space and read situations is at an elite level for a center back. But I don't think Shaw is a bad alternative in terms of what he offers on the ball. I think he has the athletic ability to play the role. Yeah, I, you're losing out, but you're not losing a ton. And Shaw has played in some massive matches this season at center back. So, Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, uh, so we, we touched on Garnacho. You said you think he made a really big difference. How good is this kid? I, I Every week I have to re, reassess where I, where I place him in terms of his talent level because early on I was very skeptical that he was going to be a first-team contributor this season um, or even really a long-term starter. Now I've totally changed my perspective on it. I think there's a decent chance... Garnacho winds up being a starting caliber player for us. Anything to add there? Like, I... Yeah, I was cooked this week for, uh, for some particular activity. Essentially, I alleged that Garnacho is better now at 18 years old than Rashford was at 18 years old. And I think a lot of people interpreted it as me saying Rashford wasn't that good at 18 when that's not what I was saying. What I was saying is Garnacho's actually exceptional. I think he's really, really good. And this boils down to a few things, which somewhat I'll touch upon Rashford's youth days, but I don't really want to make it about that. Those things are, number one, like we said earlier, Garnacho is really productive off the dribble. That's not something that Rashford had early on. Like He's a much better dribbler now than he was in those early seasons when he was playing number nine under LVG. Being productive off the dribble... And actually being able to convert that into some level of chance creation or shot creation. And by shot creation in this case, I mean for yourself. So shot generation might be a 
clearer term, is a skill that most wingers in the game don't have. Most players in the game don't have. We talk a lot about having central midfielders who can dribble and how important that is and how few there are. And there are more wingers who can dribble, but it's still one of the most difficult skills in the game and one of the most sought-after skills in the game. And I think Garnacho has it, which is big. And I think he both has the technical ability to dribble at players and the physical gifts required to burst past players, both on the outside and the inside. Hugely valuable. The second thing I think Garnacho does that's really valuable is he positions himself to take shots that have a high likelihood of resulting in goals. So many people will look back at Rashford's early years and the amount of goals, or I should say his first season, and the amount of goals that he scored and think he was really making good movements to generate high-quality shots. And I would agree for an 18-year-old, but probably not on an overall level. The same way we talk about the same way we talk about Rashford now as a striker was way 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 more true when he was 18 and we still have doubts now. Garnacho for a left winger is generating really good shots at goal and that's going to lead to him being able to score consistently. There's this narrative I think basically where my thoughts about Garnacho being this good have come from were He is the only youth forward who has exploded into United's first team in the last few years who hasn't done it on the basis of a massive XG over performance where they went and scored a bunch of shots and everyone went, wow, they're scoring so many goals. They just came into the team and they're a star. Garnacho's current level of performance is sustainable, if not going to improve as he gets more minutes in the team. And I think that's a really good baseline to work upon. His output is sustainable, you mean? Like, he's not overperforming expected goals or expected assists. The chances that he's created, creating, he's converting, and his teammates are creating at a pretty normal level, which means we can expect them to continue to be converted at a similar level, which means we. it's not that likely that Garnacho's going to produce less. Yeah, um, in fact, he's is, probably going to produce more. Yeah, this is an anecdote that I might not leave in, but basically, when I'm nowadays, if I'm looking at whether a player is likely to continue to perform at the level that they've established. I'm looking for, one, what are their expected goals and their actual performance? Two, is there anything that would cause them to consistently over or underperform that? And three, do I understand why they're able to generate such high-quality shots or create such high-quality shots for others? And for Garnacho, I think we have an answer to all three, which is he's able to create high-quality shots for himself he might be able to create high-quality shots for others. He There is seemingly no reason why he shouldn't be able to match the output that he creates from an expected, from a probability model standpoint. And his ability to dribble, get in behind, and get into good shooting positions is what is creating these chances for him and his teammates. So I have a good reason to believe that he is likely to continue scoring and assisting goals in the first team. Yeah, I think the only thing I'll add is I think he's probably going to plateau a little bit if he starts starting matches at some point just because he's getting a lot of game state advantages where we're playing in stretched matches and he's getting to put away tired legs. Uh, but I don't anticipate that squashing his his output. So, so right now his non-penalty expected goals plus expected assisted goals per 90 across his 3.690s in the Premier League that's not including today's game because FE Ref hasn't had time to update yet. 
is 0.68, which for context is best in the world or close winger category, right? Players in that bracket are like Rafael Liao, um, Kavicha Kvaratskhelia at Napoli, um, Salah. Like, that's the level of player that you're looking at who are who are performing at this level. Even if he drops considerably, like he could drop to, let's say, 0.48, you're looking at a level there that's comparable to like past seasons of Rashford. I think this season he's higher up. Um, players like Bakayo Saka, like there are reasons why those players might be better than him in whatever other aspect, but that's a good amount of output to be registering at 18. And I think it's reasonable to expect that his output will still be good even after the drop-off, even despite the small sample size. Yeah, I agree with all that. As for Rashford, this is just sort of a fun thing to talk about because it doesn't mean anything. Who cares whether Garnacho is a better prospect or not? But I will say this. Rashford scored three of the five uh, Premier League goals that he scored in his debut season in the first two matches that he played. Uh, And in the matches after that, he had two goals in about eight Premier League matches. Again, you can't just break down a player to their goal output, but his strike rate for that season wound up being one goal in every four and basically non-existent uh, assist output. That's like below average from a Premier, for a Premier League striker, and he played most of his minutes as a striker that season. I think if you go back and watch, and I have gone back and watched, his overall striker play was pretty underwhelming. He struggled to impact most matches. Uh, you'll see a lot of his, his goals that season came in stretch game states, specifically against teams that were trying to possess the ball against us. He really didn't affect most matches. That's not true of Garnacho. He's affecting game like matches in basically every game state. I think it's very hard to make the argument that he's a league average winger uh, based on what he's shown so far. I think he's probably above average. And so just looking at it from like that very crude standpoint, I think Garnacho is probably a better player at 18 than Rashford was. But it really doesn't matter because we have them both now. And they're both United players, so like, who cares? Like, I think since then we've discovered a number of things about Rashford's skill set that we didn't know back then. Like, he is more productive on the dribble than I would have guessed if I were watching him with the eyes I watch Garnacho now. Back then, I think he's a better passer. Like, Rashford can be yeah, a really creative agreed. passer in the right scenarios. So now we know these things about Rashford that I wouldn't have said we knew back then. I also think he is somehow more athletic than he was back then. Like, he's grown considerably. So there's a lot that has made Rashford the player he is now versus Rashford the player who debuted back then. I'm not comparing that at all, right? And I think we forget that over time, right? The player he's become versus this player who was just a kid who broke onto the scene and was scoring a bunch of goals. The other thing that's interesting, I think, is to whatever extent that this matters, I don't know. I just think it's interesting. Rashford was the number two man in a bad attack in his debut season, right? That attack was probably just above mid-table level creative a creative force in the Premier League. Um, and he was the second best player from the moment he debuted to Martial in that season. Garnacho right now is probably still not a starter in spite of the level of performance that he is putting up in a decent to good attacking side. So probably one that is 
close to, if not top four level in their rate of creating chances. And that definitely affects output as well. It, you can argue that Rashford's output was diluted by the fact that he played in a bad attack. You can argue that Garnacho's output is being diluted by the fact that he's playing in, he, that he's not the main man. I think both of those arguments are probably limited to a large extent for reasons that would be rambling to go into, but I just think that's really an interesting point when looking back at some of the youngsters who have debuted for United in the past few years and the teams that they came into versus what Garnacho's coming into now. This is we're we're barely talking about the current team anymore at this point, but I think Rooney and Lingard were both better players than Rashford was at that point. I I, I don't agree that he was top two most important players in that team. And I've recently rewatched those matches. Looking forward, United play Barcelona and Leicester this week. Given we've talked about the issues they had in what you probably wouldn't even know we won this match based on how we talked about it today, but. Uh, given the issues that United had against Leeds um, at the weekend at Ellen Road, how worried are you about this Barcelona fixture? And also, how worried are you about uh, this Leicester match in the league? Well, listen, two trophies on the line after the results this after the results this weekend. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, Barcelona, I think United will go back to what they were doing against City and Arsenal. Casemiro's back. I think that, I think it'll be okay. I'm interested to see this. I think Barcelona are the better team, but I think United style is suited to playing them. So I think it could be an interesting match. Leicester have been really poor this season, but I've heard good things about their performance yesterday when they battered Spurs. Um, so maybe if I have time this week, I'll I'll dig into the tape of that. If they if they are playing well, then they have some good players who can really hurt United. And they also at their best were playing a high press and build out of the back system. Um, So it'll be similar to United's typical matches against the bigger teams. Um, Last time United played Leicester, they were pretty much allowed to play out with not much struggle against a struggling Leicester team. So on that basis, I wouldn't be worried that much. How about you? Yeah, I think we will lose to this Barcelona side across two legs, but I don't think it's at all out of the question that we could beat them. Uh, as for Leicester, I'm I'm not that worried about that Leicester match. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they're likely to cause the same problems that Leeds caused for us. But that doesn't mean we won't lose <laughs> or drop points. Uh, yeah, it it is uh, not fun. I will say that United had to play two matches against these Leeds wingers, who are all really annoying on, on the ball: um, Nanto, Somerville, and Sinistera, and then. After all this, they have to play Rafinha on Thursday anyways, but, you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not panicking about this. Listen, it is what it is. If they go out of the Europa League, they go out of the Europa League. It's We're not that deep in it yet where I'm like, I would really like to win. I think it's more yeah. at this stage that I would like to beat Barcelona than I would really... Like, I yeah. have a lot pinned on the Europa League and, and success at this point. So, there's a lot of big yeah. games coming up, and these are just two more of them. Yeah. All right. See you next Sunday, Aaron. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.